any contentious discussion like this, or political discussion in general, let's say, we have to start on the understanding that none of this is 100% right. There are other viewpoints to be considered. So I'm just setting the stage for all of that. Throwing dirt at the person that you disagree with doesn't really accomplish much. I don't even think it accomplishes a lot in the world, but it certainly is ungodly and not the kind of behavior we expect in the church. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. I am here with my co-host, David Campbell. David, what's up? How are you? Yeah, I'm about as good as I usually am. It's good to be here. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. I've missed, I've missed both you guys. Yeah. It's been a few weeks. We were traveling. Um, I was out of the country. David was in... You were out of your country, too. You went from Canada to Chicago. We did. And uh, how was that? Well, we had some interesting things happen, but uh, they were great. And uh, we also visited a church in Michigan that we're closely associated with. So, And then my kids threw me a belated birthday party. So uh, it's been all good. Very good. Yes. Happy belated birthday. Happy belated Campbell. birthday. You. you turned... Can we say this publicly? 39. 39. I knew I knew it. 39. I mean, honestly, how does someone look so good? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so I listened to this debate over the weekend um, on guns from a Christian perspective. And one side of the debate was uh, pacifist did not believe in the use of violence, even in the context of self-defense. The other side of the debate was somebody who was making the case for being allowed to um, own guns and use them in the event of protecting either your own life if it is in danger or the life of somebody else if their life is in danger as well. This is obviously a topic that is talked about a lot in America because, uh, well, we have the right to bear arms as part of our constitutional rights. Um, and we also have uh, a lot of shootings that happen here. Um, I haven't looked at the statistics, so I'm assuming that we have uh, much more than most other Western nations in the world. Um, but then also people make the case for why uh, an armed society is a safer society. What are your thoughts on Christians and guns, David? I, I genuinely, I don't own a gun. I've shot a gun like maybe twice in my life. Um, Michael's from Texas. He owns like 20 guns. And, uh, you know, he, he goes shooting every day. <laughs> my dad lives in a city called Gun Barrel City, Texas. No, it's not. Yes, it is. It is a real place. <laughs> and it is called Gun Barrel City. Perfect. And I was joking about the 20 guns. <laughs> I think you, you own like a rifle back home in Texas. I, own, yeah, I have two shotguns that I have probably not even looked at for a decade. Right. They're in my my mom's top of my mom's closet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But David, you're, uh, you're Canadian. You spent a lot of time in the UK. Um, it definitely seems to me like this is an issue that Christians see through the lens of their culture. Like American, uh, Americans tend to see it through the lens of their culture. The guy who was the pacifist was British. And so it seemed like he was seeing it through the lens of his own culture. Um, but also was making a really strong biblical case. What do you think? Help me. 
Well, you know, this is one of those hot button topics that you don't really want to get diverted onto, uh, like, you know, masks, vaccines, and Trump. Uh, so, uh, um, because I think uh, you just have to be tread carefully. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Um, and to come down with easy black and white answers isn't necessarily the most helpful thing. People want, you know, people don't like nuanced answers. They want simplistic solutions. They want everything to be really easy. They want to be on the right side of the issue and to feel that people they disagree with are on the wrong side of the issue. And I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong. That's human nature. Uh, and I think it's fallen human nature because I think it betrays our own insecurity. I uh, think, in, in honesty, we have to start any contentious discussion like this. We have to start, or political discussion in, in general, let's say, we have to start on the understanding that none of us is 100% right, you know, that there are other viewpoints to be considered. So I'm just setting the stage for all of that because, um, you know, throwing dirt at the person that you disagree with doesn't really accomplish much. I don't even think it accomplishes a lot in the world, but it certainly is ungodly uh, and uh, not the kind of behavior we expect in the church. So uh, as Christians, when we're talking about this, um, we're aware of the fact that there are, I mean, I work with some churches that have Mennonite background and they are pacifists by tradition, at least the, the Mennonites are. So there's certainly a tradition, uh, you know, when my dad was, uh, I was kind of ejected from his church in the Plymouth Brethren when he uh, went to war uh, in 1939 um, because the Brethren, at least the Brethren that he was part of, were pacifist. And so, um, you know, so there's difference of opinion. Can can we just briefly, when just for people listening, mm -hmm. pacifist? Can we just give maybe a super broad definition? Yeah, I mean, I would I would define it as uh, someone who is totally committed to nonviolence, no in, matter in scenario. any scenario. Okay. So, if you were to play the logic out to its fullest extent, not only would you be against owning and using a gun in the event of someone attacking you. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, if war was waged on your nation, then even in that event, if you have a, a nation that is characterized by their understanding of Christianity and, and Christian ethic around this topic, you would not retaliate in that. Got event. it. That, and that was part of the argument uh, that the pacifist on the side of the debate was making. And I should say the debate was really good. Like mm -hmm. both of them were super respectful and and you know, left room in the conversation for one another's views. Um, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. uh, but he he did make that, that okay. delineation. Um, so no just war, uh, just total nonviolence. Okay. David, is that your experience with? Well, I've never, I, I have never had much to do with, with out and out pacifists. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I've ever, I can't say I've never met a pacifist because I might have met one, but not known they were pacifists. But 
I've never had a discussion with anyone who who declared themselves to be a pacifist, and this is the reason why. Uh, and then, of course, how consistent are they? You know, if you're walking along the street and and someone comes up and starts attacking your wife, let's say, it, it, what does your pacifism look like in a situation like that? As opposed to, you know, I'm not going to sign up for the military, or even the Mennonites. Uh, or in in Britain, they were the um, if you didn't go to war, you could be a con- what they called a conscientious objector, which meant that you did community service, backup work, and that sort of thing. I mean, you still did your thing for your country. You just weren't in the front lines of warfare. So and and uh, you know, I I do have um, friends who were raised in the Mennonite tradition who, you know, at the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, I can't remember what the the terminology was, uh, but they they went and and did. Uh, it was allowed for under American law. They went and did sort of community service or whatever as a substitute for being drafted because they were given a religious exemption. Nonetheless, they still did something. They didn't sort of just say, "Well, nuts to this. I'm not doing anything. Put me in jail if you want." They said, no, well, we won't do that, but we will do this. We will make our contribution. Which is interesting because by being involved at all, you are in a way throwing your support behind your nation's uh, cause. Mm -hmm. So you're, in a sense, you're not standing against the war. You're doing your part to aid your nation's success. So I I would say that even like a true pacifist, and I might be wrong about this, would even not even go that far. Mm. But you mentioned the example of um, if someone is attacking your wife in the street, mm-hmm. like I will be, I would be as, as violent as I need to be mm-hmm. to stop somebody from attacking my wife or my children. I will come to the aid of, of my friends. If, if somebody is, I was sitting in a coffee shop a couple of years ago and a guy was standing outside the coffee shop and uh, a, a man who was, like either mentally unwell or high or, or both or, you know, something like that, walked up to the guy, decked him in the face. And then the guy like dropped to the ground, bleeding face. And just a complete innocent bystander, totally innocent bystander. And then the guy like, you know, walked away. I like ran out there Mm -hmm. not to be like a hero. And I probably would have gotten my butt kicked (laughs) if I tried to engage in any kind of fight. But like, you know, you want to come to the aid of people. And if that includes in the moment engaging in some kind of uh, fight, I mean, I don't know. I would have a really hard time if someone broke into my home and I did own a gun and they were pointing a gun at, you know, mm-hmm. at me mm-hmm. or my family. Like, it seems so. Uh, let's look at it from a biblical perspective, right? So, one of the arguments that was made on the pacifist side was Jesus's command um, in the Sermon on the Mount, that if someone strikes you on the cheek to turn your other cheek to them also as a nonviolent way of living. One of the verses that was pointed to on the pro-gun side was uh, a verse in Exodus that talked about how if if a thief comes into your home, uh, essentially you, whatever the weapon of choice was, you're allowed to to attack the person you're allowed to def- it's mm-hmm. a, I think a verse about self-defense the the pacifists saw Jesus's ethic in the Sermon on the Mount as equivalent to 
you know, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at a woman with an, with adulterous intent, um, then you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's, it's kind of like raising the bar. But I don't really see the equivalency there between a verse about self-defense and a verse about uh, turning the, the other cheek. Like they, they seem to be about opposite things, not going further, you mm-hmm. know, with the same ethic. But what would you say, David, in regards to the turning of the other cheek? Is that an out-and-out total prescription for never defending even somebody else's life, which I guess could be talked about as loving your neighbor? Is it an out-and-out prescription for nations not engaging Mm. in battle if another nation wages war? And these are complex issues, I suppose, but it's worthwhile talking about. I think Jesus was... In this, and of course, everything has to be taken in context. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing a wrong understanding of the law. He's addressing an understanding of the law that reduces its uh, commandments to the point where a person could be said to have obeyed them fully and thereby earn brownie points with God. That's the attitude that he's facing. So the Pharisees felt that they had earned the merit, they had earned their own righteousness before God. And the, there was rabbinic theology, you know, that basically your life is like um, your good deeds and bad deeds are, are weighed in the scales. And, and if you have more good deeds than bad, you're in and so on. So, uh, so the Pharisees, uh, in order to uh, you know, make their claim that they had obeyed the law and therefore, in effect, God was obliged to give them brownie points, give them reward that they'd earned. Um, in order to do that, they, they have to reduce the actual command of the law because, in fact, they're hypocrites. Uh, and Jesus pointed that out in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. Uh, they're like whitewashed tombs. You know, they claim to obey the law, but in, in reality, they don't. So the sermon amounts kind of shock value. And he, he's saying, look, um, you, you, you know, to f- fulfill the law fully means perfection, perfect obedience. And nobody can do that. Uh, so he escalates the whole thing. Uh, and and the idea in the Old Testament is an eye for an eye. Uh, that's the mm-hmm. justice system of the Old Testament mm-hmm. is built partly around that principle. Which was meant to uh, curtail injustice yeah. through retaliation. That's- so that if someone took my eye, I would not go beyond right. uh, mm-hmm. taking their eye mm-hmm. by taking their life. Right. That That's that's correct. And, and uh, so, uh, but Jesus is you know, is talking to some very wily people who claim that they're fulfilling that and he's throwing some shock value at them and saying, well, you 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 can't really fulfill it if you still got sin in your heart. So, uh, you know, even if technically you haven't committed adultery and you can say, I haven't committed adultery, um, to go to the next step. And it's one thing to say, well, I realize that, <clears throat> you know, that I'm still a sinner by the grace and mercy of God. I haven't committed adultery. That's one thing. That's a correct response. Uh, 
But the Pharisees were, I'm such a good person that I'm way above the standard of all these adulterers. And Jesus said, no, you're, you're, you're not basically a good person. You're basically a sinner. And, you know, um, you're, uh, you know, the fact that you still have adulterous thoughts in your heart shows that, you know, shows that you're not perfect, that you can't make a claim on God, that you can't say you've earned brownie points with God because, you know, you're still, uh, you know, very much rooted in, I mean, you, you've got a real sin nature that you're dealing with and nobody can earn a brownie point with God unless they're God, unless they live perfectly. And they, and so in the context of that, this business is about turning the other cheek. It's the same thing, you know, that, that the Pharisees are saying, well, you know, we've obeyed the law. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. Uh, in terms of, you know, retaliating against our enemies or whatever. But Jesus said, no, and you're, you, 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 you would have done if you, if you could have got away with it, you would have done it. And really what's in your heart, your heart is that you wish you could obliterate the person that, you know, wronged you. Uh, but the, the limits of the law mean that you can, you can't get back. You can only get back at them a certain uh, to a certain measure, but if you if you really could do what's in your heart, you'd kill them. And Jesus said, "No, the opposite attitude. What's in your heart should be the well-being, even of the person that wrongs you. Somehow, you should wish for their well-being. You you know you should feel sorry for them. You should you know why did they get into this position? You know they're heading for eternal hell and praying for them and all the rest of it. So." It's an attitude of the heart, not external actions. Well, I guess in saying that, like I could see based upon that argument, there's a, you could say, well, okay, so it seems obvious then that uh, using a firearm at somebody when they're attacking you is, is not in line with the ethic of Jesus, except to say, I wonder, is there a difference between vengeance and defense? Yeah, well, uh, you, you know, I don't see, um, I mean, the Apostle Paul said, if I'm guilty of capital offense, put me to death. You know, mm -hmm. problem with capital punishment under Roman law. And uh, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, look, you know, you, you might need a sword. I'm surprised the guy. Having that's, what I, that's the verse I was going to read, right? So 20, Luke uh, 22, I think it is, 36. 36, when he said to the disciples, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, quoting Isaiah. Right. So 53. again, it's it, Jesus is, is making its shock value. What he's really saying is that difficult times are coming. Right. Uh, it, it the, the liter he's not necessarily meaning literally because, you know, they, then they say to him, oh, here, we've got a sword or two. He said, no, no, that's, you're missing mm -hmm. my point. You know, it's mm -hmm. the same, I think, with turning the other cheek. It's um, Jesus is looking for, you know, a response uh, in the heart. He's looking for a heart response. Mm -hmm. uh, so how can I put it? Like, if you wrong me, uh, if you if you wrong me, 
then um, my first response is not going to be to phone up 10 people and to tell them what a jerk you are and to grind you into the ground. My first response is to say, well, Lord, what Jake has done is wrong. You know, that, that we do acknowledge that because God has a standard of right and wrong. What Jake has done is wrong, but, uh, you know, he will reap what he's, what he's sown and I just give him over to you and help me not to respond in such a way that I'm just doing to him what he's done to me. That's turning the other cheek. And so when you translate it into pacifism, it's like uh, it, 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 it gets literalistic it, and gets away from the kind of shock value of, of what Jesus is really getting at, which is what's going on in the heart. So I'm not sure Jesus... You know, if 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 there was the if if Jesus was teaching the disciples, you know, if you're if you're out on the, on the street and uh, uh, you know, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If the Good Samaritan had a couple of friends that were traveling with him, I'm not sure that Jesus would have said, um, "Well, just allow him to be attacked and desert him." You know, that doesn't seem to be in line with the Jesus teaching either. Um, uh, so, uh, but on the other hand, it's, you, you turn the other cheek by forgiving the wrong that was done rather than by seeking vengeance. So I think that it's, it's missing the heart of what Jesus is saying to turn it an outwardly over literal, where you'd be walking along the street, somebody attacked your wife and you just you just stand by and do nothing because where, what is your responsibility as the, as the husband, as the spiritual protector, et cetera, et cetera. Are you just a spiritual protector and you're not going to protect her when somebody comes up and tries to rape her? I don't think so. Right. Preventing violence is not the same as vengeance. And I, I think to, to your point about, you know, what's in the heart is important because if I'm going to prevent violence in a situation, then I'll go to whatever degree I need to, to stop the attacker. You know, there's no guaranteeing that I'll succeed because um, I don't know how to fight. <laughs> but you'll go to whatever degree you need to if it's, if it's returning a punch to get somebody off of the person that's being attacked, then that's, that's trying to prevent violence. It's not the same as... Uh, trying to take revenge upon that person or even wishing that person harm. Um, and I think to your point about the heart is it's almost like it's maybe I'm off on this, but it's almost like it's a matter of conscience. Now, obviously right now we're talking about a fistfight. Maybe this, the conversation gets further nuanced when you introduce the subject of weapons that are, are made for killing, whether it's an, an animal or, or a person. So none of this is to say that there should not be really strong laws surrounding guns. And I'm not an expert on that subject, so I can't even get into it. But certainly it would seem absolutely reasonable and sensible to have that. Uh, but aside from that, on a, just on a philosophical level, there does seem to be some room here to go, maybe this is a matter of conscience for the believer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I like, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable standing up, you know, in front of a congregation and saying, uh, 
owning a gun in and of itself is wrong. Self-defense, if someone breaks into your home and attacks you or your family in and of itself is wrong. I wouldn't feel comfortable making that statement. Yeah, nor, nor would I, uh, um, uh, I just think it's, a, it's a, it goes back to the heart. So if you've got, if you've got somebody that's accumulating an, a miniature armory in his house, you, right. you just say, well, Hey, you know, like, I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> what's the point of this? Like, what about the stewardship? You spent thousands mm. and thousands of dollars on guns and you're not paying your mortgage off or you're not looking after your wife and kids. Like, why are you doing this? What's the point of it? And then if the answer comes back along the lines of, let's say, a conspiracy theory, then that person has a wrong worldview. You know, that, that goes back to what I'm always harping on about, about the dispensational worldview, Satan being in charge of the world and the anti being around every corner. And, you know, it's like people are going out buying guns and buying survival rations and and believing all sorts of stupidities um so i would say well why is it like for instance you know my grandfather was uh, a crack shot and he he did fight in uh my grandfather uh, died before i was born but he did fight in the uh just before i was born he did fight in the first world war at, at passchendaele mm-hmm. And which is an awful place. My grandfather uh, got gassed in the First World War uh, at, uh, as I recall, at Passchendaele, which is absolutely a horrible thing place. And uh, but before that, he got trained in in arms, and uh, for the rest of his life, or part of it anyway, you know, it, it, shooting. He was a crack shot, and he loved shooting guns, and um, he would take my mom who was their only child out to the gun club shooting and so on so what i'm saying well why do you have you got a gun there's all sorts of reasons to have guns you might be uh it might be a hobby that the treasurer of our church in ontario was was the same thing it was a hobby shooting um then there's hunters there's all sorts of hunters i mean north america was a hunter's parrot people had to you know hunt to live so there's the, farmers have guns to protect against wild animals. So there's all sorts of different reasons why people have guns. But if you're the guy that spent fifty thousand dollars, you've not paid off your mortgage, not looked after your wife because you're into a conspiracy theory and you're accumulating a mini armory of weaponry, that's a problem. So I think it's uh, I think we have to uh, uh, approach the issue of people with guns. You know, like w- w- what is your reason for it? Uh, if there's an excess, right? And I, the, the problem is that it, historically, when I, you know, I know I'm on dangerous grounds, I try to stay out of other people's business, but um, the American Constitution, America was born in rebellion, we all know that, and, uh, uh, and, and, and technically is still in rebellion against the crown. So um, but, I'll, I'll have it stated that the, the pacifist on the side of the debate made that exact same joke. Did he? <laughs> yes. And I will say also that he did add the, the stipulation that, you know, you may own a, a rifle for hunting. He, he wasn't he didn't have a problem with that. Oh, well, he was very gracious. But uh, but in any event, there was this historical situation where, uh, you know, the citizens, uh, the, the citizenry was called upon to form an army and everybody was armed and that was the historical circumstance. And that's why it was written into the constitution. So right from the get go, 
you've got this in the foundation. And um, that's a, that's a, a, something that's, you know, particular to the United States, the history of the United States. So for better or for worse, it just is. And so uh, until this day, and that's why people outside the United States do not understand. They don't understand the history of it. They, they think it's just people that, you know, that own guns. It's just some kind of hyper right wing politics or something. They don't understand there's 250 years of history behind all of this. And you can't erase that. You know, and part of the history of it is that everybody has, well, not everybody has a gun, but the rate of gun ownership and the number of guns in circulation is far, far higher by an enormous factor than it would be, let's say, in Canada, which is the most comparable nation because, you know, Canada and the United States are quite similar. They share the same continent, the same kind of geography, in many cases, the same language for the most part, and so on. And yet, uh, the gun ownership in Canada is a fraction of what it is in the United States because uh, Canada did not go through that rebellion and therefore there was, you know, it was always understood that it was the, the army, uh, you know, that had the weapons and not the individual citizens. Uh, and so that's just built into the fabric of society. So, so, to go into the United States and say, well, we, we have to put extreme gun controls and remove guns. And then, of course, people say, well, the criminals will always have them anyway. The problem is there's just so many hundreds of millions of guns in circulation. You can't just wave a wand and make it all go away. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's a deeply ingrained issue. But what is not helpful for Christians is to get all hyped up and angry and start throwing dirt at people that disagree with them. At least we can have a civilized discussion. I mean, it would be nice in an ideal world where there weren't any guns or other offensive weapons. That would be nice, but it's not the world that we live in. So uh, I don't think that, uh, as I said at the beginning, the simplistic uh, black and white sort of um, solution uh, well, it's either, you're either a pacifist, uh, how are you to find that, or, you know, you're a militarist. Well, most people aren't either. Most people are, including Christians, are, have a more nuanced view. But like I said, people like the easy way out. They like the simplistic answer. They don't like to have to deal in nuances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So obviously it's a whole discussion culturally, uh, and that's before you even really get into trying to have the discussion from a Christian perspective as, as well. It, it does seem best to me to say that specifically self-defense with a firearm is a matter of conscience, uh, but there must also, as with all matters of conscience, you know, like drinking, there also has to be conversations that need to be had if there's clearly excess there. Right. And that's another issue that, again, people go to one side or the other instead of looking at the nuances of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there's just, you just have to, like, the reality is you're talking about a subject that is life or death. Mm -hmm. So I get it. There's a lot of weight to it. Um, and I understand it's not an easy dialogue. I feel like the, the 
the pacifist guy made a really strong argument, uh, but I also feel like the guy on the side of, you know, no, I think self-defense with a, a firearm is okay, also made a really strong argument. Um, his was much more logical uh, in terms of he was building a case, um, and it was a strong case. So, Well, you know, we were in a, a potentially dicey situation in Chicago where we were in a back alley, and um, there was a drug deal going down, and we're sitting we being our uh, our host that we'd just been visiting, uh, and myself and Elaine, we were in his vehicle, and there was no escape in this back alley. And uh, our host wasn't all that bothered, didn't seem to be all that perturbed by it. He just announced there was a drug deal going down. Um, anyway, it went down, and uh, there were two young men there, and I, I'm absolutely certain they both had guns on them. Uh, I can't imagine they wouldn't have had in their line of business, so to speak. They could just have shot us if they wanted to. And so I got thinking about it. Um, and I thought, well, if one of them pulled a gun, uh, I probably, if I'd had a gun, I probably would have shot him, you know, because that's my wife, and my own life. And, you know, my family is, is to be considered and, uh, and what he's, I mean, I didn't initiate it. What he did, you know, if he pulled a gun with the intent of killing me for no reason at all, um, you know, or to rob us or something like that. Uh, so you got to think about it when you get in situations. Um, uh, is that something that I, you know, uh, I mean, I'd have to live with it the rest of my life. And, you know, I can't predict how I'd have responded to it. But I, I can't say that I would just have sat there if I'd had a gun and not used it. And right. if I'm being honest. Yeah. And that's why I started the conversation by, you know, I share that, that same feeling and I have no problem being honest about that. And I think that that's so normal. Mm -hmm. Gosh. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> I'd be pretty surprised if, if someone said, no, I, I think I just let the drug dealer shoot my wife, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. or me. Right. I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. like, that's not, yeah, not me. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, and I, to me, I, I've, I've again, until you have to go through something like that, I don't think you know exactly how you're going to feel. But if we're talking judgment, I, I don't, I don't think I would live with any fear of judgment from the Lord because of that circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I would have a, a clear conscience right. between me and God as, as it regards that situation because I knew what was in my heart in that moment. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, should we finish with a couple of toxic theology questions? Let's do it. Leland's trying to log in right now, by the way. I know. I saw that. He texted us okay. and said... Cool. He's early. He's Yeah, he's just... Uh, we okay. Need, this has been a heavy discussion. It's been good. Mm -hmm. Really good. Very good. Um, now let's get into mocking some people's theological ideas. How about that? Shall we do that? I'm kidding. We don't mock anybody. We don't mock anybody. Sometimes, just, sometimes David. We just. Er, er, just on mockery. <laughs> okay. Um, let's start out with a fun one, shall we? White evangelicalism. Would rather you be a bad person with the right beliefs than a good person with the wrong beliefs. 
going to read that again. White evangelicalism would rather you be a bad person with the right beliefs than a good person with the wrong beliefs. Well, see, that's a that's a stupid argument because if you understand Christianity, uh, you cannot have the right beliefs and the wrong action. If you uh, if you have you know obedience is faith and faith is obedience. If you really understand what you believe, you're going to walk it out. And the Bible says if you don't walk it out, then you don't really get it. So uh, I and 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 I don't know of uh, I don't know of any pastor who would want anyone in his congregation to have the right beliefs but be a quote unquote bad person. I mean. If you really have the right beliefs, it means that you have recognized that you're a sinner, that you have cried out to God in repentance, that you've asked God to forgive you, that you recognize that you have no right to lord it over other people, and that Christ has called you to follow him in the way of the cross. That's right beliefs. If, you know, Jesus talked about people who, who call me, Lord, Lord, and even prophesy and cast out demons, but and I'll say I didn't know you. Uh, so, you know, I think he was talking about people who um, were thought they had, maybe thought they had right beliefs, but actually didn't. I don't think it's possible to really understand the gospel and not let it be walked out in your life. Mm-hmm. And well, it's also assuming in that argument that people they're saying are good. Mm-hmm. that you have to then just like dig in each instrument to service there and go, the reason that they think they're good is because what they believe is right. Mm-hmm. What they think they believe is right mm-hmm. or what they believe they think is right. So you just can't, you can't detach belief from action one way or another. No. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say. Like, like, like James says, even the devil believes, right? He believes he understands how the whole thing works and perfectly, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, yeah, so mm-hmm. I think that's just a dumb statement, number one. For today. Okay. <laughs> Great. Okay, here's a here's another one. I'm going to read. I'm going to combine two of them because they uh, touch on the same topic. Uh, Jesus was anti-capitalism. He basically said that it's impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Socialism now. And then another comment, another post was... It's impossible to be a billionaire when you follow Jesus, literally and biblically. Tax the rich is good theology. And then they quote Jesus by saying, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, yeah. a, there's a difference between voluntarily giving money away mm-hmm. and having money taken off you by, by the government. Um, I mean, Jesus did believe, and Paul believed too, in taxation. Uh, and there's passages in the Bible that affirm that. Um, but there isn't anything in the Bible that affirms a particular political or ideological system. Uh, and uh, so the appeal, you know, the, the message of the Bible would, would be, uh, mo- and like money is neutral. It's the love of money that's the problem. Uh, it's just the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And the problem when you possess money is that it becomes, uh, you know, God will, will require an accounting 
uh, he he requires more of the person that he gave ten talents. So if you if you believe that God gives gifts to people, then being good at business or being good at art or being good at anything that might make you money is a gift from God. Um, the question is what your attitude is toward the money. Do you worship it? Uh, do you are, are you uh, stingy, miserly, uh, or are you a generous giver? Uh, so I think again, it's not so much political systems are never the answer. I mean, uh, Margaret Thatcher, God bless her, used to say that socialism worked fine until you'd spent all of somebody else's money and that it didn't work anymore. And uh, uh, so, you know, a pat answer, like not, socialism isn't God-ordained, neither is capitalism. They both have problems. One of them is oppressive, the other of which is based on greed. Um, you know, so somewhere in the middle of it, Christians are not called to, uh, you know, create a state with certain uh, laws or standards in it. Um, and that's the representation of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God is a matter of what's in our hearts. That's what Jesus taught. So where it starts in church is what is our heart toward money? And you can have, uh, uh, you know, you can have a, a small amount of money and, 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 and yet have a, a, a terrible heart toward money. You know, if you if you got money, if you got if you won the lottery tomorrow, you would not be generous with it. So there's no virtue necessarily about being poor. Um, and Jesus said, "Yeah, I said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom." But the next thing he said was, "With God, all things are possible." You know, so that and 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 why that is the case is that a rich person, if their heart is right, and and the question is, are you an owner or a steward? That's what all of us have to answer as Christians. When it comes to money or anything else, are we, do we regard our money as something we own, or is it just a gift from God that's passing through our hands and to be used for his purposes? Can you read the first one again, Mike? Jesus was anti-capitalism. He basically said that it's impossible for rich people to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Socialism now. Socialism now. Right. And then the second one says impossible to be a billionaire when you follow Jesus, right. literally and biblically. Yeah, I think that the, the mistake that the the left leaning person is making there is uh, number one, they're they're certainly conflating their faith with politics, so they're they're seeing the solution as a political solution. Uh, number two, that political solution historically does not have its grounding in number one the dependency upon God, but number two in many cases, even the belief in the existence of God. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, a lot of times it lends itself to a very over-realized eschatology. So that there's the belief that if, if all the wealth of a, of a society is given over to the state to manage and to distribute, uh, that that will equal, you know, some kind of communistic utopia at, at the end. But it, it deeply fails to recognize that sin is an issue of the heart. And so whether you're uh, the personal possessor of, of wealth or, you're, or the government is, is managing the wealth, there's still going to be sinners at play and there's still going to be inequality. Uh, that's just a fact of life. Another fact of life is that 
uh, you're not always going to have equality of outcome. Even if you even if you give everybody the same amount to start, you're going to have an inequality of outcome mm-hmm. after some period of time. And Christians should believe that idea on the basis of honestly God's sovereignty and what God has given to certain people. Some people are smarter than me. Some people are more talented than me. Mm-hmm. And they I could be given $100,000 and they could be given $100,000 and at the end of it I might have 80 and they might have 150. Like that's that's just the reality and I think Christians need to be okay with that idea. Uh and when you when you couple that with the biblical teaching on uh, stewardship, on charity, on generosity, on compassion, uh, I think that that is a much more um likely way to equal the the kind of society that we would like to live in than handing all ownership over to the state and having them divvy it up for us. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is, um, well, back to the over-realized eschatology thing, it's not going to happen. Like the, it, it's a, it is a literal impossibility to think that we could, uh, it, it is a, it's a tower of Babel is what it is. It's man trying to build their own way to some kind of heavenly experience apart from God's kingdom. Um, I, and I, the- I just had the thought in my experience, I've met a lot of people who were kingdom wealth generators, I call them. You know, people that, I mean, some people can make money. Uh, I have friends that can make money out of anything. It's just extraordinary. Um, the, but but they regard it, they regard themselves as stewards. Mm-hmm. And so they're givers. Money flows through their hands. They generate it and they give a lot of it away. If, if they wind up living in a better house than I do and driving a better car, well, that's fine. Sometimes you have to do that to live in that kind of world. But it's a question of what is, where is your heart at, you know? And uh, I think that Jesus is, is not talking about evening out outward, you know, evening out outcomes, making everybody, grinding everybody down to the same level. I mean, communism did a, you know, socialism, Marxism did a lousy job. Uh, it just made everyone equally poor, except for the elite that were fabulously rich. So it didn't work. It's a fa- failure because it doesn't take into account the real sin is in the heart, which is the thing we've been talking about through this whole broadcast. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is what do they mean by Jesus being anti-capitalist? Uh, and then in connection to that, it seems to me like the Bible is not against the idea of personal property. I don't see that Paul, anywhere in scripture. Paul, Paul, Paul had his business on the side and, and uh, you know James and John were uh, in the fishing business, and and the parable of the talents implies that because the talent was unit money, that God gives more to some than to others, but He requires more of an accounting. Mm-hmm. So I just think as soon as we throw in the terms capitalism and socialism into a discussion of biblical theology, we've lost the plot entirely. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not what God's interested in talking about. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I think that personal property is, that's something that is, it's just an obvious thing of life. And I think the Bible, it just kind of assumes that reality. Um, the earth belongs to the Lord. What, what, but he what, made it. What boggles me is why people object to corporations owning a lot of money, but they don't seem to have any problem with the government as a mega corporation having all this power and money 
well, it, the government is just another entity run by people. And suppose that government is purely uh, uh, democratic and everybody has an equal share in it is a total deception and delusion it's run by power brokers, just like corporations are. The sins in the heart of the individual. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got one more. And you each have, we have one minute. You each have 30 seconds okay. to respond. This one's great. I don't need anyone else to pay for my sins because I am an accountable person. If the person, if the reason you need Jesus is so someone else pays for your sins, perhaps consider that you need to learn to be more accountable. There are far better reasons to need something or someone than to forgive you of your sins. 30, second, 30 seconds each, go. Basically, that is one of the most arrogant statements I've ever met, I've ever heard, because the person who's made the statement thinks that they're absolutely fine, they're per- perfectly capable of accounting for all that, paying for all their debts and sins, and are, you know, in an exalted state of moral perfection. Yeah. Um, well, number one, I think it's a it's a huge underestimation of just how guilty we are. Uh, and then number two, actually, Christianity has a lot to do with accountability. Just because we're forgiven of our sin doesn't mean, I mean, we just talked about it in terms of the stewardship of what we've been given. Uh, there's, there is some accountability there. It seems to me it has to do with um, uh, heavenly reward and uh, what our experience is like in, in the new creation. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but it does seem to me that the New Testament talks about how the way you handle this life has some kind of impact on uh, your your life to come. Um, and David, if I'm off on that, feel free to rebuke or correct me. Uh, but I don't see anything in the New Testament that downplays the importance of accountability. I only see, hey, this is the grace you've been given and therefore, this is how you should live in light of the grace that you've been given. Amazing. Awesome. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. You're welcome. 